In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Watch out here, some uh, ready mixed gin and tonic. It's fairly all right. It's not strong enough. Now. I'm going to get doubles when I get to the north. Yeah, yeah. the real, the real deal. You'll be able to get doubles inside a pub. Oh yeah, can't wait. Yeah. It's been too long. Good atmosphere in the train here, and it's good. Yeah, yeah, it's more relaxed. Like bit of a know, holiday mode. I got even Carlo, and I went to Kilkenny on the train. It's more sectioned off. You're kind of, John, more restrictive. Well, we're travelling from Dublin up to Belfast, and actually, I haven't been in Belfast in over 30 years because of the pandemic. That's where we're heading. For a good weekend. I, I haven't been uh, in Belfast ever, so I heard everybody's going up, so everything is open. Uh, from Ballybrack up to Belfast, uh, just to have a few drinks to a bit of normality in a restaurant. and uh, We miss it, so we wanted to do something normal <laughs> shopping, drinking. And would you have any fears now about like, going indoors and places? Or? Uh, it'd be a bit different now, but like, I'm excited to go up, just to go. My son lives up there with his two, we're two grandchildren, so we're going up to stay in Castle Rock with them for a week. Yeah. What do you think of the atmosphere now? The birthday party. It's great. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Great to see all these young people going out to enjoy themselves. They have to. Yeah, it's great. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever asked somebody famous for a celebrity autograph? And what did you do with it? Well, take a listen to this. God, I think that's, I heard a, a, a story of it was Picasso in a, in a, a coffee shop and he was doodling on a napkin. That's right. He famously would pay his bill with a, with a little sketch yeah. on a napkin. Yeah. A, a woman asked him for it and he said, sure, if you give me $35,000. Do you know what? I think, said, he was a bit, I think he was a bit tight and he liked to pay for his bills with you know, a little doodle. Yeah, he said, he said, it took me my whole life to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Not just these seconds. Some of the people you've got, you've got uh, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, that was in the mail, uh, wrote to him. Um, I, and I used to write to all kinds of actors, Jimmy Stewart, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, all these guys. I would, I would send photographs and stamped addressed envelopes and, and a lot of them would reply. And uh, Liz Taylor, though, that didn't work out for you. No, she turned me down. I, w- I, went to, um, I went to Selfridges because I'd heard that she was going to be uh, appearing there because she had a new perfume coming out. And I waited in the car park because the actual shop was just full of people. And I was the only guy there, apart from a photographer. And when she came out, eventually, she was, she had about six bodyguards. And she said, sorry, I can't. But she did look me right in the eye. So I felt like we had a kind of little moment together, even though I didn't get the autograph. <laughs> and you kind of respect it. You understood this, this isn't the deal with Liz. I understood. She'd been through it a hundred times, you know. Uh, she understood I was just a sort of deranged fan, you know. <laughs> a, a, lot of pe- a lot of people would at some point grow out of this, but you didn't. Well, in a sense, I grew out of it because what I did is I decided to turn it into a business. So I kind of killed off the collecting side uh, of it um, and just started to, to buy and sell. How did you develop skills in that? Because I noticed one of the things is that very often it can be somebody working in the office of the famous person who'll do the autograph and send the autograph back. So how would you develop the skills to know when it's real and when it isn't? That's right. I mean, it's a kind of trial by error. So you, so I initially I had I built this big collection that then turned out to be have a lot of these secretarial examples, so not signed by the person themselves. And I'd find that out from other pen pals who would say, oh, no, you know, you're never going to get a, a Jim, an authentic Jimmy Stewart from that address. You have to try this other address. Or, you know, Ronald Reagan had a machine that would sign autographs for him called an auto pen. And you just get to find out from other collectors and you just build your knowledge gradually. 
over the years. And how does that get recognised? Because at this stage, you'd be recognised as a person, one of the most res- respected um, autograph experts in the world. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I've just been at it for a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now, so I've been doing this full-time for 20 years. Uh, when I first started, I was certainly the youngest dealer around. And now, you know, uh, I'm still probably one of the younger dealers, but a lot of the older dealers have died out. So, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small industry and I'm pretty well known within it. And what is the professional world of autograph hunters like? What are the people who populate that like? Do you mean the people that collect yeah. for a living? Well, I mean, some of them are just hard-faced uh, business guys. You know, they, they, they'll turn up with 10 photographs and, and try and get every single one signed and just so they can then sell them off afterwards. Um, and then there's the dealers, many of whom are sort of glamorized collectors, really. Right. Um, who are the really big people, the, the autographs that everybody wants? It tends to be the people that have uh, the historic people who are important historically. It'll be a scientist who made the first discovery of something, or it'll be you know Charles Darwin or Napoleon, important historical figures. How much would they go for? Well, Napoleon signed thousands and thousands of documents, so you can get them relatively inexpensively, but it's still sort of around about a thousand pounds and upwards to spend depending on what the document actually says. Okay, I would have thought it was more because I, I, I read that Beatles book a few months back and they were saying Paul McCartney's autograph goes for two and a half grand. Well, I mean, actually, you can get a Paul McCartney, just a plain signature, probably be more like between 500 and a £1,000, I would say. Okay. Um, but but a full set of the Beatles signatures is more like sort of four or £5,000 and upwards. Very nice. Um, as you move through, though, some of the really big names, people like, uh, I just, I can't believe you could actually still get it. You could get your hands on a Shakespeare autograph. Uh, well, not exactly. I think there's only six known examples in the world. So if one of those actually came up for sale, it would probably be tens of millions of pounds. I think there's a, one or two at the British Museum in London. Right. Who would, they're in museums, are they? So they're, they're very unlikely yes. to go into private house. Who else is so. there? I saw names like Van Gogh and Karl Marx. Oh, yeah, those are things that I've sold. I sold a Van Gogh letter. I have a couple of Karl Marx letters at the moment. Um, I've sold Gandhi letters. Uh, Einstein letters, uh, Henry VIII documents. Henry VIII. Um, yeah. I'm very impressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and is it, I, I suppose people looking would be wonder, is there a little bit of you're in a shop or you're somewhere and you find an autograph that you're then able to make an awful lot of money on. Do stories like that still happen? Do you know what? In this day and age, not so much. It used to be when I was a kid. I remember one day going uh, out of school in my lunch break and wandering up into a little antique bookshop in in North London. And there was an autograph book that had Churchill's signature in it. And the guy in the shop just didn't recognize his handwriting. And I think it was £1.50 or something. So that that was pretty good. But, you know, those stories don't tend to happen because all these shops now put things online and uh, it's very hard to, to get a bargain. Some fascinating insights there from world-leading autograph dealer Adam Andrusier from Moncrief. On Saturday, John Fardy spoke with producer and director Paddy Slattery for Screen Time. Your whole interest in cinema kind of came about as a result of that. Do, do I have that right? You do, yeah. I like After the, that car crash, I was in hospital for a year and then in and out of rehabilitation for another two years. So my 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 pastime at the time was watching films and 
physiotherapy, eat, sleep, and and go again. So like I fell in love with not just filmmaking but just storytelling in general. And and I guess in a nutshell, I I felt at that point in my life. I was so restricted in what I could say and, and where I could go, I guess, physically, that that back into myself, and I started to discover that there was a lot more to myself than, than met the eye, and, and storytelling was, a, I guess, a great opportunity for me to express myself. So I started with poetry and, and even songwriting, and um, that evolved into short stories. And somebody along the road said to me, Jenny Paddy, them stories you're writing, they're fairly good. Did you download them off Google? And I, I was like, actually, no, I just, I came up with the stories. I loved creating these different scenarios. It was a great escape for me. So that somehow evolved into uh, writing uh, short scripts. And, and I woke up one morning with the, the notion of becoming a filmmaker because as ideological uh, as it might sound, I felt I was living in a world that I didn't quite get on with in terms of what the world was saying to me in relation to my disability and how I should be perceived by the public. And I thought, I thought film, music, literature, radio, journalism, your, your job there, it's such an influential uh, medium that I thought, you know what, if I get involved in filmmaking, maybe there's an opportunity for me to maybe impart some of my own experience and some of my own wisdom uh, on, on other people and maybe it might change people's perceptions of who I am as a person because although I'm a wheelchair user I don't consider myself to be disabled in any kind of way uh, and through this medium of film I can kind of prove to people that uh, there's nothing I cannot do or there's nowhere I cannot go through the power of my imagination yeah well said and and then like maybe, maybe it's an obvious question but so when you when you're directing a movie I mean you're unable to walk, you use a wheelchair. Are they serious? I mean, sounds like a ridiculous question, but but maybe mm. you can tell me otherwise. How serious is that a challenge to direct a movie? Because one might think, well, with the way technology is now, it's of no hindrance, but at the same time you are in a wheelchair. So how mm. much of an added complication is that for a director? No, it, there's nothing uh, silly about that question. It's a very practical question, and filmmaking is a very practical job yeah and and it's it's hugely physical in fact one of my fears was would i be physically capable of doing it mm-hmm. and it was a local filmmaker here actually declan rex who who would have directed pure mule and yeah. eden and stuff like the flag it was declan that said to me he said paddy the technology is out there you can direct the film from the seat of your pants through wireless technology and monitors you can be sitting in a little office here and direct a battle scene you know two miles yeah. away in the field and once i knew that i knew there was nowhere i couldn't go in terms of communicating and and i think for any director i think the, the most important tool you need is a communicational skill with people especially people in a film business who there's so many diverse personalities in sure and and I, I figured if there's one skill i have i think it's it's communicating and getting along with people and um, yeah, once once I knew I could do that, and once you can earn people's trust and their faith in that you're capable of, of of not just writing a script, but being able to, I guess, organize and orchestrate some kind of a, a coherent scene on a set, then they will they will go with it. And mm-hmm. I've never encountered anybody that's ever judged me on the fact that I'm in a wheelchair, or at least anyone that I've worked with. 
I've always had that sort of mutual respect. And it's only when I maybe show somebody that maybe I'm maybe lacking in experience or whatever, that's where, you, you know, the challenge really comes in. And I guess that's natural. Like any filmmaker, you're learning as you go. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. It, it was tough, I'll be honest with you, John. And like I had to structure the actual shoot uh, in order to accommodate my physical ability because there's no way I was going to be able to do five consecutive days for four consecutive weeks. Uh, I just wouldn't have had the time to be able to squeeze in my my medical interventions and my physical therapy and all that kind of stuff. So, So we structured our shoot around my ability, my physical ability, which wasn't that much of an inconvenience after all. And that, that was my biggest fear. Will I be able to restructure a shoot to accommodate myself? The inspirational Paddy Slattery from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John at the new time of 8pm every Saturday evening. You probably can't. You probably, you're not sleeping, I'd say, Caroline, are you? No, it's just, but it's not just that. It's scary. If you're inside in your home and you hear all this screaming, you don't know what's going on. Are you round a corner and you see 50 youngsters? My street would normally be a quiet street. Yeah. There's rubbish on the street. There's cans being left there, bottles being left there. Do you know where they're just arriving back and they're just leaving their stuff? out? out. It's just unbelievable. Mm. And like this is your home. Yeah. You know, and try living next door to that one. We, we can't, I should say, we, we, we reached out to... Um, to Airbnb to you know see if they'd like to join us or send us in a statement or you know come on and respond and tell us what the situation is because what can you do Caroline as a local resident? Nothing because one the council the council don't know who's an Airbnb right unless the person applies for a change of use. Okay you can go then to the council if you want to as a person and say look is this house applied for an Airbnb that takes months then of procedure. If you go on to Airbnb, everything has to be done through email. They'll get back to you. It might take a week. Then you cannot find out who the owner is. A lot of these houses aren't even owned by Irish people. Alone, some of them aren't even owned by people living in the county. Mm. You know, so who do you turn to? Who do you ask? The guards, I don't, I'd say their lives are living hell from it. Where are they supposed to put 50 youngsters? at two o'clock in the morning. And like, it's, you know? it's probably hard to know, I mean, even to be fair to Airbnb, there's nothing to say that these are necessarily Airbnb houses other than, you know, I know you, you appreciate you might know that locally, Caroline, but you could have somebody else that maybe has a house or a second house that they rent out during, you know, the college term. And that's now maybe vacant and they're renting it as a one-off week oh, no, to week. Oh no, these are specifically Airbnb. Are they okay? Yes. And, now, I don't know about others. I'm sure there's others where their students didn't come back and yeah. have suddenly let out the houses through by the night or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not fair on the residents if a person isn't... Do- like, if you were a hotel or a bed and breakfast or a guest house, you are legislated under Fort Ireland. You are far... You know, you have to go through fire regulations. You have to go through everything. This is putting 50 youngsters in the house as a health and safety issue alone. I passed one house there two weeks ago, and there's a flat roof at the back of it, and they were climbing out the bedroom window with bottles in their hands to go out and sun themselves at four or five o'clock in the evening. 
Now, if they fell off the flat roof, who's going to be responsible mm. for them? You see, the hotel wouldn't put up with it. Do you yeah, know what exactly. I mean? And the B&B wouldn't stand for that. But there's nobody to monitor these people because under Airbnb, the owner isn't even there. There's no owners in these houses. There's nobody responsible for what goes on inside in this. Yeah, so it's short term. Um, it's, it's, it's short term lets really, you know, in, in general. And, and Caroline, I'm sure this isn't unique to Galway. Oh, I mean, not, I'd, it, not that it, no, I'd say it's happening all over the country. Yeah. Well, but actually, the I should just, just, just on that, if, if, there's, if there's other people in a similar situation to Caroline, if you want to get in touch with us, it's 53106. Um, how many nights a week, Caroline, is this going on? Seven nights. It doesn't Seven. matter what nights of the week. It could be mental on a Tuesday night and quiet on a Saturday night. It could be mental on a Friday. Do you know, there is no... The, midweek can actually be worse because they're getting special deals. They're getting cheaper rates. For midweek than they would at the weekend you know but you know when you see houses you only have to go on Airbnb and you go Google entire premises for Galway, Dublin Limerick, Cork, anywhere and they will say tell you 300 plus houses available for entire premises you know not just mm. shared houses it's not the way some Airbnbs people will let out a room but these are they take come in then they take over the entire house there's no owner there. There's nobody responsible for them. They don't care. Now, mm. I'm not blaming youngsters here because they're only going to do what they're going to do. Do you know? It's the owners of the houses are responsible. Do you know? At the end of the day, the youngsters have no place to go. They've nothing to do. Do you know? They've no place to socialise. You know, when indoors comes in, they still aren't going to be let in. Mm. You know, what? to a certain degree, I don't blame them. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. Carly Kellen, Sinn Féin MLA for North Belfast. No, I don't think her culture, I mean, the, what I don't accept are building bonfires filled with effigies and burning national flags, particularly on an interface where their Catholic neighbours are looking out the window. You mentioned there the effigies, the Irish tricolour political posters appear in these bonfires. Has your own political poster appeared in any? I'm sure it has. But, um, and when I say it, I report it to the PSNI as a hate crime, because that's what it is. I mean, all that nonsense, that has got absolutely nothing to do with culture. Nothing whatsoever. If I seen anyone burning any national flag, uh, I would at least stand up and say it's wrong if I could not stop it. But these bonfires are not just controversial because of the burning of effigies, flags and political posters. Some are also built close to Catholic areas. This year, a bonfire in Tigers Bay in Belfast, which is close to a peace wall which separates Catholics and Protestants, has been particularly contentious. And Thomas, a Catholic who lives just a few hundred yards from where one has been built, told me what the last few weeks have been like. Bonfires, probably less than 200 yards across the street, maybe less. At night time, there's antisocial behaviour with it, you know, the drunkenness, the sectarian music. You know, this is what you have to listen to. You're not, you're not getting it. You just aren't getting a full night's sleep. How fearful are you then approaching the, the 11th night this weekend? But this year, you know, quite honest, we're getting a bit concerned. I have to say, like, we are because of the way things have been going. Um, on Sunday here, from 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon, there was a load of young Lads had put them maybe 16, 15, 16, 17, and they're all, they all had alcohol and the abuse to give over like it was, it was shocking. You know, they just they hit for such young lads. I just found it hard to take in, you know. 
agreeing with everything. Well, what sort of stuff were they saying? Just as gay as female bastards, she's we're going to burn you out. But the hatred and the sectarian coming from it, it's, it's sad too that they're, they're young, they're young lads too, but it's just sad that they have so much hatred in them. Many loyalists say they believe nationalists will not be happy until the 11th night bonfires are no more. However, they say they're going nowhere. But how do they defend the burning of effigies, flags and political posters? They don't understand that. Listen, we have Catholic uh, friends from down in this town too that, that come to the bonfire on the 11th night and they actually come and they stand and watch us build the bonfire. And there's not one bad word they said about the bonfire, you know. They actually enjoy getting the night out. You know, so why can't everybody go on and have a good night? You know, yes, people have their own opinions of it, I understand that, but until you come and witness what's happening here, you, you can't uh, you can't say anything bad about it. You have to come and witness it first. Then anybody from another area come in and tell us what we can and can't do in our own areas. Something that we've been doing long before I was born. You know what I mean? A lot of men there long before these men were born as well. I mean, how dare they come in and tell us what we can and can't do in our own field? And look, our own estate, there know. are some people who say... This isn't culture, this is this is a hate fest. I mean, from, from the Battle of the Bourne, was it a hate fest in the Battle of the Bourne when they were lighting beacons of light, the, the, guy, the guy came bully up Carrick? I mean, was it, was it, was it a fest there of just, just violence and sort of antagonising it? But that's never been the case. I mean, how's it really a problem now? Probably the people that don't understand it are in a minority. You only have to look around here. It has been gridlocked for days with cars. Um, and certainly anybody that doesn't understand it or has any doubts that they're welcome to come and see. And join in. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Tuesday, News Talk Breakfast looked at the area of male friendship. I think generally speaking, Dawn, we are obviously generalising here, Eric, uh, women are much better at keeping in, in touch on, on, a, on an ongoing basis, whether it's uh, online or phone. I, I, I'm sometimes intrigued by what women can talk about the next day after spending an hour on the phone the previous day. But on that basis that men haven't been able to physically get together, do you think that might impact on, on some male friendships a little bit more, might make it a bit more difficult to pick them up again when we, when we can meet again? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think... I think friendships might be enhanced. I think what we what, what will happen is we'll have missed people so much that when we do get back together again, there'll be a huge sense of euphoria, um, and this, therefore the friendship will be will be strengthened. I met one of my friends there uh, over the weekend, and I hadn't seen him since before it all kicked off. We had a we had a couple of beers out of the back garden, and uh, and it was it was brilliant. It was like uh, it was like therapy for both of us. You know, yeah. I think we kind of we kind of just stumbled upon it. We stumbled upon the idea. It happened very last minute. And then we were kind of both delighted that it had happened kind of thing. You know, we hadn't thought that it would give us the sense of happiness and joy that it did give us, you know? Um, so I think lads who think that they might suffer because they haven't heard from their friends or seen their friends in a long time. Um, I think it'll be worth the wait when they eventually do uh, meet up. You know, I don't think I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad thing. I really don't. Uh, and tell us a little bit. Uh, I'm intrigued by this myself, being uh, of the male persuasion. Uh, the, the, the the content of that conversation with your friend that, that you hadn't seen physically for such a long time, because I think I think a lot of people believe that that men don't discuss substantive issues. If the problems in their lives or whatever, they won't share that with a male friend. I, I think that's a bit exaggerated, but we do come at it sideways, perhaps a bit. I think we do, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the first topics of conversation will be uh, probably a, a little nod to each other's appearance, going, wow, you piled on a bit away, or, <laughs> you know, you're looking a little bit haggard, that kind of thing. So there's always the flagons at the start, and then it will delve into maybe the news of the day or sports of the day. 
And then as the conversation and maybe the beers flow a little bit more, uh, things might get a bit more personal kind of thing, you know, and uh, so how have you been feeling kind of thing, what happened, you know. Um, but I think in this day and age as well, I think in the modern, you know, in the year 2021, I think men are more in touch with their feelings than they used to be. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, the mental health issues have been, you know, very prevalent in society the last few years. And I think men are much more open to discussing their feelings now than they used to be. So um, I think it's a bit of a myth that men don't openly discuss their feelings anymore. I think it's uh, I think it's a lot more prevalent now than it used to be. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. What about the issue, though, that, that there's something specific about male friendship, uh, the bonding between men of, of all ages, Eric? Because, you know, I, I've often heard the argument, I've often seen people write it and say it, that their, their female partner, their wife, is their best friend as well as their, their, their lifelong partner. Uh, do you buy into that, or, or is there a different type of best friend with another bloke? <laughs> Oh, I better be careful what I say here. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, by nature, you marry your soulmate who, you know, should be your best friend. And, that, you know, is your is your best friend, I suppose, in those terms. But we all have a best, best friend who is probably, um, um, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, someone you grew up with. But as I said, I've got five friends who I grew up with. We're all kind of, we all kind of see each other on the same, on the same level footing. And I think a lot of the people who say, you know, I married my best friend, a lot of that is, social media orientated I think a lot of it is for it's for likes on Instagram kind of thing oh my god I married my best friend today no you didn't you married your fiance you know um, that kind of thing Comedian Eric Lawler from Youth Talk Breakfast and then the other tweet just in the last while which again is catching the eye is Marcus Rashford I'm sure people were interested to see what he's made of the last 24 hours so Rashford it's quite a long one I'll just read it out to you I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to put this into words or tell you how I'm feeling at this exact time. I've had a difficult season. I think that's been clear for everyone to see. I probably went into that final with a lack of confidence. I've always backed myself for a penalty, but something didn't feel quite right. During the long run-up, I was saving myself a bit of time, and unfortunately the result was not what I wanted. It felt as though I'd let my teammates down, felt as if I'd let everyone down. A penalty was all I'd been asked to contribute for the team. I can score penalties in my sleep, so why not that one? It's been playing in my head over and over since I struck the ball. There's probably not a word to describe how it feels. First final in 55 years, one penalty, history. All I can say is sorry. I wish it had gone differently. Whilst I continue to say sorry, I want to shout out to my teammates. This summer has been one of the best camps I've experienced. You've all played a role in that. A brotherhood has been built. That's unbreakable. Your success is my success. Your failures are mine. I've grown into a, I've grown up in a sport where I expect to read things written about myself, whether it be the colour of my skin, where I grew up, or most recently how I decide to spend my time off the pitch I can take critiques of my performance all day long my penalty was not good enough it should have gone in but I'll never apologise for who I am and where I come from I've felt no prouder moment than wearing these three lines on my chest seeing my family cheer for me in a crowd of tens of thousands I dreamt of days like this and then finally he references the mural in Withington so you may say this there is a mural of him in Withington which was uh, defaced earlier on with the kind of language you can imagine and it was very grim is where he's from obviously and we've just put a picture up if you're streaming on the show a bunch of the locals went out and wrote loads of messages and cut out hearts of various colours and put it all over the mural so he says the messages I've received today have been overwhelmingly positive seeing the response in Withington 
had me on the verge of tears. The communities that always wrapped their arms around me continue to hold me up. I'm Marcus Rashford, 23 years old, black man from Withington, South Manchester. If I have nothing else, I have that. For all the kind messages, thank you. I'll be back stronger. We'll be back stronger. Marcus. Kevin Cleban, you're very welcome. Hi, Joe. How are you keeping? Yeah, very well, very well. So it's all going off there on Twitter between Pretty Patel and Tyrone Mings and then Marcus Rashford. Extraordinary... Um, post on his social media page there is quite moving when you see the response of the locals in Withington, the vast, vast majority of locals coming out, supporting him letting him know that ultimately hopefully the racists are in the minority Absolutely, I mean he he represents a multicultural Britain doesn't he? Um, I think maybe uh, I think listening to him there talking about the pride he's got in his country, wearing the three lions and all this sort of thing I think it must I think it must get into his head a little bit, uh, and, and, and the black players in particular. And I'm not just talking about this year. I'm talking about my year when I played, even the year before me. I saw a tweet from Dion Dublin there today talking about uh, the racist chants that English players have received for, well, since Viv Anderson played. What was that, late 70s, early 80s, when Viv Anderson made his England debut? This is, it, it's not a new thing. Mm. Um, it, 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 it it's crazy in my eyes when the lads talk about playing with pride for your country when they've all received racist abuse for playing for the country and it's it's certainly not representative of them or the families it's not representative of, of, of a majority but that minority will always come to the fore won't it it'll always come out and it'll always it'll always have its voice and it's sad that those players you know I looked at the, the penalty takers yesterday Sancho uh, Rashford and, and Saka, all black players, all being racially abused online. Uh, it's never been acceptable, but it's, it seems like through social media, it's actually acceptable in some quarters on there. And um, I, I just, it, it's, it's disgusting in, on every level. Let's be honest now, it's disgusting on every level, Joe. But I think for those players, having pride in playing for your country and receiving that, I don't know, there's got to be a conflict there. There has to be a conflict within their own mind, I, I'd feel at times. Uh, I mean, everybody knows my my um, background and where I've come from. I grew up in England. I grew up in maybe a society through the 70s, late 70s, when I was born, through the 80s, when it was, I always felt it was very much a, a racist Britain I was growing up into, very much anti-Irish is what I felt as a kid. I, had, I feel as though I had no connection with that country whatsoever, even though I grew up there. Uh, so it's it, it, it's not surprising to me these lads are receiving these racial abuse, these racial taunts, Joe. It isn't because it, it, it's something that I've experienced across my whole life uh, when, when I grew up and lived in that country. And I think I think our game in general, uh, Joe. I'll just make this point before I maybe go to it. But you know, I, I don't have a I don't have a problem with the lads taking the knee. I have a problem with that. It seems to me now that UEFA and FIFA are quite happy for the, all the players taking the knee, but are they actually getting behind the players who are taking the knee? Are they really doing that? Because what we're going to see across the course of the next few years, we'll see racial chanting in various parts of the world. We'll see homophobic chanting. We'll see whatever um, whatever sort of discrimination chanting across the world. And we'll see. We'll probably see stadium bans. We'll probably see crowds not being able to, to get into uh, to watch the team playing. And it will be just a, a, a paltry fine that will be thrown at these teams without the authorities really getting behind 
the message that's been sent out. And this has been this has been the case now for ten or fifteen years, Joe. You and I have. How, I don't know how many times you and I have spoke about this issue because we have, and we'll continue to speak about this issue. Joe Malloy and Kevin Kilban from Off the Ball. Stephen Hogan. Hey, you work in a restaurant, yeah? Uh, well, I went off the park down with payment there. A couple you of, went off it? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago because I knew that I got the job here. So, so you, what's on your job? Uh, I work in Malahide and Soyamtai. So you're going to work indoors and outdoors. And how do you feel about being 25, working indoors? It, it, it's not the best situation not being vaccinated. Like I looked at, like I put myself on forth because like last week they had the opportunity to do the. The AstraZeneca and the, John- and the Johnson Johnson, I'm still waiting to hear back on. So hopefully, hopefully, oh, hopefully, one. hopefully, yeah. But I mean, I think the portal is meant to be open now in the next couple of weeks for anyway for my age group. So I'm hoping, but like at the end of the day, I have to get paid. I have to be able to support myself so somehow. You will be indoors. Yeah, well, indoors and outdoors. Yeah. Serving people. Well, I'll be bartender, but yeah. So I'll be serving people. Yeah. I like I don't mind them at the end of the day because yeah, working again. Like that's the main thing. Um, but also, like. Like I feel like, every, like regardless if, it, if it's my age or people who aren't vaccinated, the country needs to reopen. Like in parts of it, and obviously people need to people need to have a livelihood and be able to pay their way because the pandemic payment isn't sufficient enough for people to support and whether you're renting or whether you're paying off a mortgage or whatever bills you have to do, surviving for college. So you're outdoors having a pint. It's your birthday today. Happy birthday! Thank you very much. And what's your name? Declan. Declan, indoor dining. Are you looking forward to it? Are you- Confused about the, the system? I'm really looking forward to it because there's, there's so many good restaurants in Dublin. There really is. Um, unrecognised restaurants, they don't get the recognition, especially not now in the lockdown, one, one lockdown and two lockdowns. But like, I would like to see indoor dining coming. So you're coming happy back enough online. it is coming soon? It's coming soon. Please, please, God, yeah. And will you eat indoors? You're not vaccinated, you won't be able to eat indoors. Uh, I am not looking forward to indoor dining, but I don't want business to suffer as a result. I'm really enjoying outdoor dining, so my argument would be more outdoor dining, less cars on the streets. Do you understand? Bring atmosphere to the streets. It's nice, the weather's pretty good. The danger with indoor dining, it's more of a threat of COVID kicking off again, and we, we really can't go into another lockdown, can we? It's not fair, but they can see that it's the right way to do it at the moment. Are you concerned about forward certs? Or will you just look at someone and go, he or she, she's 50, she's grand. They're more than likely double vaccinated, we'll let them in. I mean, and it's going to be difficult to, to enforce. Uh, the guards will only step in if uh, an inspector tells them to, but they're going to be very busy. A lot of things are going to have to be taken on trust, and we would have to assume that society in general is really not in the business of infecting half the population. I would like to think that the world we live in will not forge these certificates. I don't think we can enforce the review of such forged certificates. And if we found one, I don't know what we would say to that person, that we need far more guidelines, we need far more instruction. Do we have a device that we can check the certificates um, like some sort of scanning computer? Yeah, do we have something? That, is there something to tell us how to do this correctly? Government supports have been amazing so far. Hopefully they'll come through with something on this, but the the, the enforcement and the t- inspection of these certificates is uh, its hard to fathom at the moment. We have no idea how to do it. And we would absolutely want to ensure the safety of all our team. Absolutely. We always want to make sure that the team are kept safe and well and healthy. It's been a difficult, stressful year over the last year and a half. How have you coped? It's been very difficult. I think uh, everybody's confidence has been knocked. I think sometimes if you lack self-confidence, it can affect you mentally. 
I personally found January and February very difficult. I know people that found September, October, November last year very difficult and um, certainly people have acted differently than they would in normal times, good and bad. There's been, uh, there's been some various different manifestations of different behaviours and I just hope it all comes back to normal very soon. Henry McKean reporting. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. And so, have ice pops always been? I mean, apart from those kind of creative variations, such as Wibbly Wobbly Wonder, have they always been made essentially in the same way? Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting how they're manufactured, Sean, because it's it seems like such... I remember even when I was a kid, let's make our own ice pops. It seems like mm, such an easy yeah. thing to do. You just get a bit of Fanta or something and pour it into a mug and throw it in the freezer. And then your mother comes in and finds a cracked mug in yes. the freezer. Crack. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is this. Uh, we talked a long time ago when we were talking about the flash freezing process by uh, Clarence Birdseye. And the freezing process is really very tricky because it's all about the size of the ice crystals. Now, I'm sure you've had this experience. If you've bought a really cheap ice pop, Mm. it's rough texture on your tongue. Yes. That's because it has large ice crystals. If you buy an expensive one, like say a Solero or something like that, it's very, very smooth on the tongue. And what's happening here is that nowadays in the manufacturing of ice pops, there's a a fascinating process called overrunning, which is where when the the, the liquid, the sugar sherbet is put into the mould, it's constantly agitated throughout the freezing process so that large ice crystals are not allowed to develop. So you end up, the finished product, the finished solidified frozen product has tiny round ice crystals in it that the tongue doesn't even register. It's like licking a puppy's uh, nose. Maybe you shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> Baby's backside, you could have said, or you know, think, a puppy's watch. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it could be, but you could possibly be arrested for that. Uh, so uh, we wouldn't recommend you do but you that. You get what I'm saying? Yes, indeed. Oh, right, that's so interesting. Right, yeah. so interesting. So it's all about the overrunning, um, and uh, that's what you know an expensive ice pop will make today. But just to go back to your texture there, Sean, because it's in- interesting about what, how you define an ice pop, like. Does an ice pop not only have to be exclusively made of frozen ice, Mm. frozen water, sorry, um, but does it also have to come on a stick? Ooh, but it's messy if it doesn't come on a stick. But yeah, is there any examples of it not being... Oh, there was that thing that was in a cone. What was that called? Mr. Well, there was the Calippo. Yes, yeah. Calippo is a fantastic ice pop. That's still in existence. I believe it's still made by HP. But... The, one of the most popular when I was a kid, uh, because it was the cheapest, <laughs> was the Mr. Freeze. Yeah, yeah. And that obviously has no stick at all. You just pushed up from yes, the bottom. Yes, It was about, Jesus, it was about a foot in length. It was mm. a massive thing, but it cost 10p. And it's a brilliant invention by the ice pop industry. I'd completely forgotten about them. They were fantastic. But why yeah. is it so brilliant is because it's only frozen at the point of sale. So it's very easy and very cheap to transport. It's transported ah, yeah. at room temperature as yeah. liquid. Yeah. So you don't need a reefer to transport it. It only freezes when it's brought into the shop. And that was the brilliance of that when it was developed in the 1970s. Still going today. Simon Tierney from Stuff That Changed the World.
Yeah, so I'm just after finishing college, still living at home with my parents, and I suppose it's kind of a generational thing, like, there's not really many other options. Um, I'm continuing on now, doing a master's course in September, and, like, that's obviously money involved, and you kind of can't really put your eggs in more than one basket, you know? Like, you're going to do a master's or you're going to do this, that, and the next thing you know that you're not going to be able to move out as well. So I know that for however long I'm doing that course, I'll definitely still be living at home, you know? My dress isn't going to change, because I wouldn't have the choice. I mean, rent is too high, and once you start renting... You're probably not going to stop, you know, you're not going to want to move back in after you get the independence, which is great. You get the independence and all the freedom and all of that, but you kind of want to hold off as long as you can. And that's what everyone would say to you, live at home as long as you can. But grand for me, I mean, I get on with my family, that's all well and good, but some people don't. Some people don't have the choice. And then what do you do then? All of a sudden you might have to get a job, and which is fine. It's great to be working and earning, but once you have that rent that you'll have to pay at the end of every month or whatever it is, like you're under pressure then from a very young age. And, you know, you're not 50 with money in the bank saved, so you've less to fall back on. So I think it's a bit of a precarious situation to be in. But you said you get on with your parents. Is there rules, like, you know, on leaving the college experience? Can you be coming in the door all hours of the night? Um, I suppose it's an unspoken agreement. I mean, you kind of push until you know you can't push anymore. I mean, it all depends on the relationship you have with your parents and your siblings, who else you've got at home, and your own personality as well and what you want. I mean, no, I wasn't falling in the door at 4am, and if I was, it was quiet, you know. Some of your children, are they still in the nest or have they all flopped? Oh, no, they're all gone. He was the last... Your son, is it? Yep, yeah, yeah. My, my daughter left before that. Yeah. And did he stay with you for a number of years? He did indeed. He was a mature boy when he left. He stayed until the day he got married. And he had his two friends to breakfast that morning. His best man and his groomsman. What is it about Irish sons that you think they, they stick around or they, they hang oh, on with, with the Irish mammy? Oh, it's the way the mothers rear them. What else do you think? The dinners and the washing and... Oh yeah, why not? I've uh, three children still at home, yeah. yeah. One is um, 27, the other is 21, and the other is 18. And for the 27-year-old, what's it like living with an adult child? Oh, no, she's good. It's no, I have no problem with it at all. She's very self-contained. She works from home into California, so we, she's on a different time scale as us. So it's, 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 it's all good. No problems. And is there, is there boundaries there, or do you, does she contribute for rent, or how does it work? Um, and she does, no, she, she as, as much as she can, but it's not something I'd be asking her. I mean, she's enough, she, she's young, she's making her own way, so I wouldn't be, I'm not too fussed about looking for rent off her at this stage now, don't tell her that. It's, it's, not, it's not an issue for, for us, uh, or for her either, you know. She'd be away, she'd be, she would be abroad, but she's came home for the time being, and look, we're happy to see her, she's happy to be home, and look, it's a, a short-term thing, space-wise, plenty space. You're back in the, the family bubble again like it was years ago? Exactly yeah but I mean then there's different uh, She, I mean, she's grown up so she has her own routine but God love them, it's, it's tough on, on, on young folk at the moment, I mean they've very little social life, very little getting out, I mean we had it when we were younger you could go out but they simply have no place to go. Josh Crosby reporting. On Sunday Talking History explores the turbulent life of Hollywood legend Cary Grant. Here's Patrick Egan and Mark Lancy. Can we also talk about his private life? Because he got married five times and seemed to be always searching for love and for happiness. He, he became a father for the first time at the age of 62. That there definitely seemed to have been something missing in, in terms of his personal side. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think if we want to, um, if we want to uh, psychoanalyze him, it's, it's, it seems fairly straightforward to me that his, his relationship with his mother cast a very long shadow over his love life. And, and that is that uh, one day when he was 11 years old, he came home from school and she was she was not there. Um, she was simply gone. And he didn't see her again for, for 20 years. 
And throughout that time, he assumed, um, from the time he was 11 to the time he was in his 30s, he assumed that she had abandoned him um, and, and, perha and perhaps had died. Um, and, you know, he'd sort of given up on ever finding her again or seeing her again. And I don't think he, he really ever got over that, the insecurity that stemmed from that, the lack of trust, the insecurity um, that that left him with. His relationships with women were always troubled. Um, his, his fifth marriage, his last marriage, uh, when he was in his, when he was in his seventies, was a very happy one. Um, but the, the previous four marriages and many other relationships that he had with, with women um, were, quite, were quite fraught. Um, and the women always said, yes, he was as charming uh, as you see in the films. He was as handsome, he was as charming, he was as much fun as you would think, but he had these trust issues um, and he was always afraid um, that the relationship was going to come to an abrupt end, um, that the women were cheating on him or disinterested in him. Um, that he just, he could not um, trust women, particularly women who loved him. And how do you think he's assessed now as an actor? Is he someone who chose wisely and was in these classic iconic films? Or is he seen as a great actor who m contributed substantially to making these great movies? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's a bit of both because one of, the, one of the remarkable things about him, once he was a freelance, he went out of his way. He chose to work with some of the greatest directors. So he chose to work with Howard Hawks. He chose to work with Leo McCarry, um, with Alfred Hitchcock, of course. Um, and those directors helped him reshape his, his star image. Um, so even though we think of him as uh, being Cary Grant and we think of him as being one thing, if you if you go back and watch all of the films and and uh, I, I watched them all in order. And so I could see how much change there was um, and that he he reinvents himself every few years and reinvents himself every few films uh, in order to to keep his audience happy. And I think it's remarkable how long he was popular. He was he was still the number one. Uh, male screen actor in the 1960s when he retired. Um, so, you know, it's four, four decades uh, on, on top. Um, and I, I, think, I think we do look back at him now as a, as a great actor. I think he was a great actor in terms of cinema technique um, and uh, conveying his, his thoughts uh, in very subtle ways on screen. Um, but he also, he also knew that he had to work with the best, and he did. Some fascinating insights there from film historian and author Mark Lancy from Talking History with Patrick Egan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 to 8. OK, I'm going to leave you with the Dad's Panel from the Heart Shoulder. Here's Kieran Cuddihy, John Fardy and Ger Gilroy. Have a great weekend. Are you the disciplinarian in the house, John? I am, actually. Are you? Roshi, and that surprises me. No, I know. It surprised me, too. It's funny. We're, you know, that Jack Braille quote, we're always in danger of becoming the thing we claim to hate. Like, the things kids bring out in you is fascinating and not always pleasant because I always thought I'd be fun daddy and all. And I, I guess I am to a certain extent. But I do find that I've become 
the kind of disciplinarian. You know what I mean? That I'm the one who's, oh, you'll have to ask daddy or whatever. And I wouldn't have thought that would have happened either, you know? And you have all these ideas about what it'll be like before they come along. And as I say, I'll be fun, daddy. Jim Sheridan said this great thing once, that he never met a problem in life that wasn't better solved with love than discipline. And I just, I, it's one of my favourite quotes in the world. And I thought that that would be the way I would parent. But it hasn't turned <laughs> out that You way. forgot the quote. Despite that, was yeah, that, that quote yeah. ringing in your ears. Now, I'm not flipping As over you're screaming at the kids. going mad. But I do the odd time shout, which really surprised me. We've all known each other a long time. You've never heard me shout in this office at all. I Because I don't shout. But the only time, now rarely, but I do shout occasionally at the kids. And then I get the blues about oh, yeah. it, that I've shouted because I shouldn't, shouldn't you shouldn't no, shout I know that but I everybody that. does does everybody yeah, do you I shout think, your... I think that everybody does so, so on Dadcast we've had this conversation and it's been everybody has admitted that they all shout that okay. they they shout and roar and you're like in the middle of shouting and you're watching yourself shouting and you're like what are you doing you're just such an idiot what stop it but then you can't stop it. Yeah, I find when that happens me, it's generally more of a reflection of what's going on for me. I, I, mm. I, I It's rarely Always. that when the weather is good and it's the middle of the day and I'm happy, I yeah. rarely find myself suddenly shouting at the kids. Yeah. It's, it's eight <laughs> o'clock at night when yeah. I'm kind of tired and dare I say it maybe I've had a glass of wine <laughs> and, and I just I just like, will you just please go to bed? I've asked you 15 times yeah. to brush your yeah. teeth. You know? And, it, yeah, that's the, and again, it, that that's I think maybe what makes us feel guilty is that yeah. we kind of you know yeah, that's, ah, that's not what the kids are doing. No. It's actually just yeah, me. That's a good point as well. But I'm really pleased to hear, Jared, that that's your experience. That everyone admits <laughs> to shouting because you know sometimes my wife makes me think I might be in the minority. The only one, in that, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes well, baby puts me in a corner. Tell us, tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it began on a balmy morning. <laughs> um, I, as well, I, I live in a terrace as well. You can hear everything in the house next door, and and that sometimes. I'm, I'm I'm reminded of times I shout when I can hear them walking up the stairs next door and I think oh god half an hour ago I was roaring at the kids or the windows are open we, yeah. we, our, our terrace backs onto a bunch of other houses who are all like ah one of the Gilroy children are at it again or not really have you beyond shouting out and I think we're all on the same page it happens everyone does it but look we shouldn't like have you got a, a tactic a tactic that works uh, for a long time I would threaten with bundling all of their toys into a black sack and Ooh, taking it away and sure. I've, I've got the black sack I've brought it up the stairs I've put toys into it <gasps> and they've recanted Yeah. until recently I actually took the black sack put it in the car left it there for two weeks and they didn't even notice that the toys were gone <laughs> because there's so much toys. crap yes. they have so much crap that it's irrelevant it's completely irrelevant it just happens to be the stuff that's in front of them that they're obsessed with today but tomorrow they'll be obsessed with something completely different at the same level of obsession that they're expert in and you know, I can't keep up with this In Case You Missed It with Susan Cahill a look back at the week on News Talk. 